0: Today's reading is from Galatians chapter 3, 15 through 18. To give a human example, brothers, even with man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, the law which came, 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, So when was the last time someone made a promise to you? Or when was the last time you made a promise to someone Parents, maybe there were some promises made this morning to your kids trying to get here on time. We won't say whether those were positive or negative promises, but there might have been some flying, right? So we, we love promises. There is something noble about promises. I mean, how many great action adventure movies involve a promise? One of my favorite action adventure movies of all time is The Last of the Mohicans, just imagine Daniel Day-Lewis standing in a waterfall looking at his love saying, "I will find you." I will find you. Anybody see this movie? Come on, people. Yes, such a powerful moment, such a powerful moment. Or or how about a more modern great action adventure movie, Taken. Liam Neeson in that threatening Irish brogue, "I will find you," coming after his daughter. But but do you realize that Taken is just a complete ripoff of the 80s classic Commando? Those of you that grew up in the 80s, right? Like Commando? I mean, if, if you were a, a child and you were kidnapped and your dad was going to come rescue you, who would you want? Liam Neeson or that guy? <laughs> right? <laughs> but there's something very noble about a promise that somebody is going to protect us, to save us, that somebody is for us. There's also something very romantic about promises. We use promises in romantic context all the time. Consider the, num- the numerous songs that have promise as a theme. Going back to the early 90s or late 90s, early 2000s, you have this classic from NSYNC. This I promise you, please break out the turtlenecks. <laughs> Some of you know, you, you were there at one point, so don't laugh. Or, or how about this one? Let's go back a little bit further. I swear, all for one. Okay, some of you are like, who are these people? And some of you are just going right back and singing that song. Some of you cried over this song a lot in your childhood. Or how about the greatest promised love song of all time, I Cross My Heart by George Strait. Yes, come on, come on. I'm not even really a big country music fan, but George Strait is legit. Put down the Florida Georgia line and Luke Bryant and listen to George Strait's. That'll be the last time I ever do a country music rant in a sermon. (laughs) But we love promises, do we not? Promises give us so much hope. They give us hope that there is good coming our way. And that hope can lead to confidence that no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how dark it gets, someone has made a promise to me. And that promise will sustain me through seasons of doubt. If I know there is someone who is for me, someone who is working for my good, someone who is fighting for me, if I have a promise, I do not need to give in to despair. And look, the best kind of promises are those with no strings attached. Like some promises are hey, if you do this, then I promise that this will happen. Maybe that was the promise you told your kids this morning, but it's an earned promise. And in order to get the blessing of that promise, in order to to really have hope and confidence in that promise, you have to perform. And and so this isn't always a bad thing. Sometimes this can motivate us to to good. However, there's always this shred of doubt that sits there. And if I don't perform it this way, then this promise is not going to come true. But the best kinds of promises are those with no strings attached, I promise this, full stop. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to perform in any way. I just promise this. And how do we experience the blessing of that? How do we have hope and confidence in that promise? Hey, we just have to believe it and receive it and rest in it. Unconditional. And if I do that, that energizes my life. That gives my life purpose and confidence and hope because I know that this promise is true. Here's the other dynamic when it comes to promise. They're only as good as the person making the promise, right? Plenty of people can make promises. What matters is if they can follow through. For those of you who are fans of the TV show, The Office, one of the best episodes ever is Scott's Tots. You guys know what I'm talking about? Those of you that haven't seen the show, so the main character, Michael Scott, makes this promise to a bunch of eighth graders that if they graduate from high school, he'll pay for their college, Well, 10 years later, and he's just this middle management guy with not enough money to do that, they all graduate, and they invite him to this ceremony, and they're all expecting that he's going to sign a check, and it is one of the most awkward moments in the history of TV where he has to look at them and say, sorry, guys, I don't have the money to pay for your college, and and, and as a consolation prize, he buys them batteries for their laptops. (laughs) Batteries. But some of you, we can, we can laugh at that, but some of you, you've been on the other end of a promise like that, where, where someone has promised something great for you, but when it came time to follow through, it fell flat. And that can hurt deeply, it can make us skeptical entirely of promises. We can, we can start talking about promises, and then immediately we're like, yeah, right. Like, yeah, why, why should I put my hope in a promise? People just break promises. Promises are meant to be broken and so we can become incredibly skeptical maybe you've been lied to or used or manipulated through promises people try to make promises in order to get you to do something for them and then when they were done with you they discarded you look i don't want to minimize the pain of broken promises but that pain does not change the power of promise In fact, your pain actually shows how powerful promises are because the greater the good, the greater the harm. So whether you are hopeful in promise or skeptical of promise this morning, let me ask you this question. What if the best promise ever made was an unconditional promise by someone who utterly and absolutely keeps his word? What if the great truth of life is this? We live by promise, not performance. How would this affect your hope? How would this affect your confidence? How would this really affect the way that you live? And this is the truth that God's word holds out for us this morning. We live by promise, not performance. And so for all of you here this morning, whether you're a Christian or whether you wouldn't profess to be a Christian... I want us to see this, that, the, that promise is built into the very fabric of life. That promise is built into the very foundation of how God saves. And what promise does then is it challenges pride. It, it challenges our self-centeredness. It, it counters this performance mentality that we so often live with. And it calls us to rest in grace and live by faith. And so for you who are in Christ this morning, you who profess faith, I want you to be strengthened this morning. I want you to be encouraged in the promise of God to you. And I want you to be able to rest in that more and to let that set you free to walk as God has called you to walk. For those of you who wouldn't profess faith this morning or are unsure, like my hope is to hold out the gospel to you and the promise of God in Jesus Christ And my hope is you would believe that promise even this morning. That you would turn from your sin, you would turn from trying to perform for God and others, and you would rest in God's grace to you. So let's turn our attention to Galatians 3 this morning. And by God's word and by God's spirit, may may all of that be accomplished in us. So when we turn to verse verse 15, verses 15 through 18 are a continuation of the entire argument in chapter 3. So as we've been walking through these past several weeks in chapter 3, we see this building argument that the Apostle Paul is making. And so in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul says this, Hey, look, your own experience shows you that God saved you and that the Spirit was given to you not because you performed, but because of faith. And then in verses 6 through 14 that we saw last week, Paul says, hey, the scriptures, the Old Testament shows that blessing and favor come not through performance, but through faith. And now in verses 15 through 18, Paul is going to continue his point by highlighting the priority of promise. That promise is up front and center. Promise is foundational. Promise is what God's plan of salvation rests on. So here's what we read in verses 15 through 17. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So Paul is going to draw in just an example from ordinary life to make his point. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay. A lot in these verses. We're going to unpack them here in a second, but here's what I want you to see about the main thrust of 15 through 17, and really 15 through 18. Here's what Paul is getting at. Look, God's promise doesn't change. Like, even though there has been development throughout history, even though the the law was given to Moses after the promise was given to Abraham— Like all of that historical data, all of that stuff that happened doesn't change the fact that God's salvation rests on promise. And that promise doesn't change. And so he uses this human example. He says a covenant, a binding promise between two parties. We we recognize this. A lot of us are in covenants or contracts or agreements. It's binding on us. And there are many different types some of them, some of us are in business covenants. There are marriage covenants, military and political covenants. The, the Greek word here used for covenant is, can be used just in a general sense for, for just a broad range, but it can also be used specifically for a testament or a will. And it is likely this is the type of covenant Paul has in mind because in verse 18, he even uses the word inheritance. Because a testament, a will, is a contract by which someone is going to pass on their, the things that they own to someone else after they die. And what he points out is is that one of these contracts can't be changed. Once agreed upon, it cannot be changed. Once you've created a will and testament, once it has been ratified, the government can't change it. Outside parties can't change it. The person receiving the inheritance can't change it. In some cultures, like ancient Greece, even the person who made the will, once it was ratified and signed, they couldn't change it. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul is unaware of the fact that there are ways to get around and ways to change certain covenants and certain agreements. His point is this, no matter the type of agreement, at some point, it comes to this place where you cannot change it, set in stone. This is like the promise of God cannot be changed. If in human systems there comes a point where an agreement cannot be changed and is set for good, how much more is it true for the promise of God? If flawed, imperfect, fickle, sinful men and women who who can make unchangeable agreements, how much more the true and holy and just, unchangeable God are his promises. So Paul is trying to draw this at our attention to the fact, hey, if you and I can make an unbinding agreement, then God for sure can. If you and I can make a promise that cannot change, then God for sure can. And there's a problem if we try to change things. I mean, think about this. Like, if you create a covenant with someone, an agreement with somebody, and then you come in and try to say, hey, actually, I, I want to add this. You have to do X, Y, Z in order to get the agreed upon inheritance. Hey, hey, that's against the law. If you were to do that in your parenting, make a promise to your kid, and then all of a sudden at the end say, oh, well, actually, you got to do this, this, and this, and this. Hey, that's bad parenting, Right? We recognize there's a problem when we try to change a promise. So why would we think God would ever change his promise? Why would we ever doubt that God would ever change his promise? God doesn't start with promise and change to performance. Once his promise is given, his promise stands. That's the center of Paul's argument here. And then with that truth as his anchor, He begins to deftly take apart some false teaching that tried to take promise and law or promise and performance and put them together. And in just a few sentences, he completely deconstructs two arguments. It's going to take me a lot more sentences to explain. (laughs) But let's look at what Paul is getting at here in these verses. So the first point that Paul is making is that promise comes through one, not many. Promise comes through one, not many. So let's look again at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and two offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Okay, so let's let's sort of just walk through this, this verse here. First, we see that promises were made first point there. Promises were made. This is, again, continuing on the argument that Paul has been making. Last week we saw with Abraham. God came to Abraham and he promised him, hey, I am going to make you a great nation. I am going to give you an inheritance. I'm going to give you your, your offspring, land. And the ultimate promise, hey, in you, all the nations are going to be blessed. So God made promises to Abraham and to his offspring. And this is the sort of the, the, the hinge point here where he talks about singular and plural. So this grammar lesson, what is going on? Is Paul being pedantic about grammar here? No, something profound in the difference between offspring singular and offspring plural. But first, let's just recognize this word offspring can mean both singular and plural, right? We recognize this, Like, I am the offspring, me, individually. I am the offspring of Andy Phillips, my grandfather. Individual offspring. But I am also part of his offspring collective. His five kids, his 12 grandkids, his 12 great-grandkids, and his one great-great-grandson. You are an offspring of someone individually, but you're also the collective offspring of your family. So this word has dual meaning. But what is in focus, the individual or the group? You see, the Jews of the day wanted to make it the group. And Paul is saying, no, the focus is on one in particular person. And the difference between individual and group is the difference between understanding how we are blessed through God's promise and how you and I and anybody else experience the promise of God. So here is what the Jewish Teaching of the day said. It said that righteousness and being worthy of God's blessing came through keeping the law. Like, if you wanted God's grace, if you wanted God's favor, if you wanted God's blessing, if you wanted anything from God, you had to be worthy of it. And so you had to keep the law. And this is how Abraham experienced the promise of God and the blessing of God. He kept the law, he was righteous. He walked in a particular way, and so God blessed him. And then God said, and God promised, hey, your offspring, the people, your your family, if they want the same blessing, if anybody else wants the same blessing, they need to keep the law as well. They need to follow in a way that makes them worthy of promise and blessing. And so within the offspring plural teaching, here's how the promise... uh, in you shall all the nations be blessed, was interpreted. Here's how the ultimate promise was interpreted. Just as Abraham and his descendants experienced the favor and blessing of God by keeping the law, so everybody else will be blessed by keeping the law. The rest of the world is blessed in Abraham and blessed in his offspring as they live just like Abraham and his offspring did. Okay, let me illustrate it this way because we see a similar logic in our own cultural and political environments. America is blessed because it adheres to certain cultural and economic and political ideas. If you want to be blessed as an American, follow American laws and values. Live as an American. All you who aren't American, you can come and be blessed as an American if you come to this country and live as we do. Americans, the rest of the world is going to be blessed in you as they live like you live. It's the same logic. Offspring plural, meaning if I want to be blessed by God, if I want favor from God, if I want grace from God, I need to belong to a particular group of people. And the way that I become part of that particular group of people is live like they live. So the promise is, hey, there's that group of people over there. I need to be part of that group of people. Let me go live like them. And once I'm a part of them, the promise of God comes to me. If it's offspring, plural, if it's promise through many, then it is perform like we perform. Live like we live. Keep the law like we keep the law. And this is exactly what the Galatian church was being told. And look, when we trade, promise for performance, or when we add law to promise, this is an inescapable dynamic. Because look, it can be rather easy for us to think, hey, performance is just about me individually. Like I have to perform in a particular way if I want favor with God, or I have to perform in a particular way because I want favor with some people. But get inside that for a second. We're communal. We want to belong to a group of people. So, so often our performance our striving for identity, our striving for a sense of fulfillment, a sense of security, a sense of peace, is doing that so we can be connected to other people. And so our performance is so often wrapped up in acceptance by a group. Because we think, if I can be part of that group, I'll be fulfilled. If I can be part of that group, I'll have the identity that's going to give me meaning and purpose. If I can be part of that group, then I'll have security and comfort. We tell ourselves this all the time. We we, we can tell ourselves that there is blessing and favor through belonging to a particular group. And so we strive and we strive and we strive. I wonder, what group are you performing for? What group do you want to belong to? What group do you believe, hey, if I can live like they live and perform like they perform and do the things that they do, and if I can be accepted by them, then I'm going to have a lot of hope. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be well off. I'm going to have security. Who is it you're performing for? What group do you see as your salvation? Here's the dark side of this, because what also happens When you start to see your group as the group, when you start to see your group as the means of salvation, when you start to see your group as the one who has the market cornered on favor and blessing, what do you start doing? Judging everybody else. You start looking down on every other group because they don't have the answers. They don't live like we live. They don't believe like we believe. And this creates every kind of tribalism and hostility and conflict. Look, belonging to a group is not bad. Like, belonging to a group is good. Like we said, we're communal creatures. We need to belong to community. That is good. And oftentimes, going through the process to become part of a group is good. But this gets taken to extremes because we are broken and we are sinful. And so we have every kind of tribal problem, we have every kind of conflict and disunity. And where this gets especially scary is when the church becomes like this. When the church becomes a place where performing is what matters. Where performing to belong is what gets you acceptance. Where we start to set ourselves against everybody else in the world. Like, look, we'd never say this outright, that performance is how you earn God's favor, or performance is how you are saved. Like, we're, we're too spiritual for that. But the way we live as a church community can communicate that so clearly to people. The the way that we seek to live can communicate that we care deeply about performing for one another. You see, the false teachers in Galatia, the people Paul was arguing against, they believed in Jesus. They were saying yes to Jesus, but they were saying Jesus plus performing in a particular way. Jesus plus this law. And what we end up doing is the same thing because we'll say, yes, Jesus, but then it's Jesus plus performance. Jesus plus, hey, vote like we vote. Jesus plus, educate your kids like we educate. Jesus plus, dress like we dress. Jesus plus, talk like we talk. Jesus plus, whatever our secondary um, theological issue is, whether it's spiritual gifts or end times or view of creation, we start adding Jesus plus these things. Or it's this, Jesus plus don't be too messy. Jesus plus don't be too, don't have too much doubt. Uh, Jesus plus, hey, get your, get your stuff together, not, not too much sin. So we just start adding performance after performance after performance after performance. And then we start to look at disdain or disgust or anger at people who aren't part of us people who are different, people who aren't part of this group, this community, people who don't act and think and talk exactly how we do. We see those who don't believe in Jesus as just ignorant, prideful sinners, and we completely forget that our inclusion in the family of God had nothing to do with our performance. Church, when this mentality takes place, when we think it is salvation through the many when we start to adopt a posture that blessing and favor come because you performed and belong to a particular group, it opens the door to every kind of pride. And we lose sight of grace. And then we start requiring that we perform for one another. And we start believing we have to perform to be part of the church. That we have to we can't be messy or we can't be sinful or we can't have questions or we can't have doubts. And we lose sight of promise. We lose sight of grace. We lose sight of Christ. And we become front and center. So let me ask you, are you doing this to other people? Are you requiring other people to perform in order to be part of this church? Look, I am so grateful for the culture of First City. And I don't think that this is prominent, but we have to watch ourselves. We have to be careful We have to be on guard of ever letting this attitude and this mentality become part of the culture of First City Church. And it starts just in small ways. It starts with just our individual attitudes towards people, and it begins to spread. And so we need to guard our own hearts first. We need to ask ourselves, is this the way that we live? Is this the expectation we put on people? Are we making it Jesus plus? because the apostle Paul does the exact opposite. God's word does the exact opposite. God's word turns the volume down on performance and turns the volume up on promise. And the promise comes through not many, but one. The promise comes not through performing like a particular group performs, but by faith in that one offspring. This is why offspring singular is important. And this is what Paul points out. The one particular promise, the promise, in you shall all the nations be blessed, was given to one individual particular offspring. One person who came from the line of Abraham, one individual offspring, and this is Jesus Christ. Here's how this works. God is creative in the way that he communicates. So he says to Abraham, in you all the nations will be blessed. In you all the nations will find favor. So he's talking to Abraham and he's saying, hey, in you, someone is going to come from your line, your descendant, your DNA that is going to bless the nations. But he's also promising to that exact offspring. He's saying not only to Abraham, but God the Father says to Jesus Christ, hey, I'm promising to you, son, that in you, everybody is going to be blessed. He's promising to Christ, hey, I'm going to make you the center of my plan of salvation. I'm going to give you an inheritance of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I'm going to bless my world through you, son. Promise. So God promises. God the Father promises to God the Son. It's an incredible truth. In some ways, kind of blows our mind. But this is the kind of promise God makes. Because look, think of it this way. If the promise was made to that group of people, that means he broke his promise to Jesus. Okay, that kind of boggles our mind, right? God breaking a promise to God, God the Father breaking a promise to God the Son. The promise is sure. This is our hope. Because the promise of blessing, the promise of favor, the promise of salvation, doesn't come by performing like a group, performing to be part of a group. It comes through faith in Jesus, believing in Jesus. Offspring, singular versus offspring, plural, is the difference between be like us, perform like us, and believe in Jesus. Find your identity in Christ, find your hope in Jesus, find your security in Jesus, find favor in Jesus, find salvation in Jesus. It's the difference between putting us at the center and putting Christ at the center. Promise Puts Christ at the center. That's who we hold on to. And here's the beautiful thing when you believe in Jesus, you're brought into a community. When you believe in Christ, you are brought into a family. You're brought into a people, but not by your performance, but by grace. You're brought into a family, not by your performance, but because God has shown his favor to you. And so here's what it means we're not performing for each other. To be part of this community, you don't have to perform. So can we stop performing for one another? I'm not, I don't necessarily have one specific way in mind or specific people in mind. I'm just saying this to us. Can we stop performing for one another? Can we stop requiring that others perform for us in order for us to love them and disciple them and to serve them? Like, look, if someone has a particular threshold of behavior before you will jump in and love them and speak truth to them and disciple them and care for them, then you're asking them to perform for you. We don't perform to belong. We're here by grace. And so we show grace to other people. Church, the difference between offspring plural and offspring singular is significant. Offspring singular leads to faith. It leads to freedom. It leads to deep community. It leads to true, unconditional promise because it is centered on Christ not our performance. So the second argument that Paul is going against is that the promise is fulfilled in Christ and not the law. Now this might seem a bit redundant, but it's important. So looking at verse 17, he says this, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Why does he feel the need to almost repeat himself there in verse 17? Well, here's what Jewish teaching of the day asserted that truth started in sort of an elemental or seed form and then was eventually matured and fulfilled in something greater. And so the way that they viewed promise and law was this, God gave a promise to Abraham. That was sort of the beginning. That was sort of the seed. And when Abraham was circumcised, He followed the law in a very basic form. 430 years later, God gives the law to Moses. That is the fulfillment of the promise. That is the promise fully realized, fully understood. That is the the, the maturity of that promise, the law. And what, what Paul is saying, well, he's saying two things. One, look, the law doesn't change the promise one bit doesn't add to it, doesn't change it. It's not a fulfillment of it. It's not a more mature version of the promise. He makes that point very clear. The law doesn't change anything, but here's what they also miss. The fulfillment of the promise is not the law, it's Christ. It's that offspring. Like look, the promise that was given to Abraham was basic in form. Hey, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you inheritance. That's all he said. Then, throughout redemptive history, we see the fullness of that promise is actually the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, there's some truth into the way, the, the, the way that the, Jew, the Jews of the day thought about the way truth was communicated. We see in God's word, like truth is slowly unveiled, bit by bit, bit by bit. We get a, we get a better glimpse of it. But what is at the center? Not law. Christ. Not performance. The promise. We don't go from promise to performance. We go from promise to greater promise. It's, think of it this way. Let's say I walk up to you and I said, hey, I have a gift for you in my pocket. I've made a promise to you. You don't entirely know what it is, but you know something good. I have something good for you. And then what if a week later reach into my pocket and I pull out a thousand dollars? Now you see the fullness of that promise, right? Now you see it clearly. Now it's like, okay, I know exactly what that promise is in all its identity and all its fullness. That is what happens in God's word. We don't move from promise to performance. We move from small understanding of the promise to the full understanding of the promise. So here's what this means for us. We never move past promise in the way that we live our lives. We never move past promise in our Christian walk. We don't start with grace and faith and then just start adding performance, start adding stipulations, start adding rules and regulations. Let us not think that faith and promise are simplistic and underdeveloped and immature and not sufficient. That, that we move on from faith and promise, and, and we, as we mature, we move into performance. And here's how I think this happens for us. See, I think we fear license, meaning we've experienced enough people who claim to be Christians, but the way that they live their life is so far from Christ. You're like, how can you even claim? Or we see people who are just super, super, super immature, and it seems like they stay super, super, super immature. And so our solution to the problem is, hey, let's give them things to do by which we can mark their maturity. Let's set up some standards by which I can judge clearly whether or not you're truly a Christian or whether or not you're just immature. You see, we, we don't like mess. We don't like the tension of un, being unsure where somebody is. And so we begin to put things in place to help us resolve that tension. So we start making checklists. Checklists. Right theological beliefs, right language, right political attitudes, right education choices, behavior that doesn't annoy me. We get really picky about the kinds of sins that are acceptable, right? As long as people don't do the sins that annoy me, we'll ignore the ones that I do. So we start creating these lists. And over and over and over again, what we tell ourselves is this I can't trust God's promises. I can't trust grace. We might not say that in our head, but that's what we're functionally doing because here's what we're saying. God's promise isn't powerful enough. God's grace isn't powerful enough to change people. What really changes people is when I start giving them these things to do, when they start meeting a particular standard. That's how we're really going to see some change. That's how we're really going to see some maturity. Now, don't misunderstand me at all. Being part of the church does not mean it's a free for all. Grace does not mean sin doesn't matter anymore. Grace does not mean, hey, we can go live our lives however we want to live our lives. Godliness matters. Christ had died to set you free from sin, not to let you just stay in sin. Grace sets us free. Grace changes. Grace matures. But it does it in a very different way than performance. It does it in a very different way than stacking up a bunch of lists and rules that we create in order to try to provoke maturity. And so church, we need to be mindful about the ways that our attitude isn't about righteousness and caring about other people following Christ, but it's more about our own fear and our own sense of control. We need to be careful about the ways that we respond because we don't like mess and we don't like tension. We need to be careful about the ways we start to doubt God's promises and grace in other people's lives and maybe even in our own lives because we do this to ourselves too, right? We we start to see the mess. We start to see that, that we're not growing as we want to grow. We don't like the discomfort of sin. And so we say, hey, maybe if I do this and this and this and this and this, I'll be better. So we start creating lists for ourselves. We start putting ourselves through a performance ritual. And all the while, God is holding out promise for us. God is saying, don't perform, but believe my promise. And here's how this works, church. Because believing promise will lead to greater godliness. Believing promise will lead to actually walking in a way that glorifies God and puts sin to death. Because when I believe the promises of God, when I believe God loves me that much, when I believe that his grace comes to me, not because of anything that I've done, but just because he is a loving God, when I've been accepted by my father, man, when I see how good he is, it makes me want to let go of the sin that I so tightly grabbed to you. When I see that he loves me and his power is for me and that he is working all things for my good, or when I see that That God means that I would walk in freedom. I can let go of my sin. I can let go of the things that I find my security and my identity in. The more that I believe God's promise, the less I have to believe other things. The more that I believe Christ has done everything, the less I have to perform. The more that I see the goodness and glory of God, the more I want to live for his goodness and glory. So promise leads us to godliness in a much deeper godliness than performance ever could. So church, are you living by performance or promise? See, promise or performance is driven to be accepted by God and others. Promise lives and rests in the acceptance we have in Christ. Like, are you striving on your, are you white knuckling life? Are you trying to do it in your own strength? And so you're constantly tired. Hey, that's performance. Promise rests in the power of God, trusts in the power of God, and doesn't strive in white knuckle things. Hey, are you hiding sin? Are you afraid to confess? That's performance promise confesses sin because it leans into the promise that he's faithful and just to forgive us. Do you not like mess and uncertainty and tension, whether it be in other people or in yourself? Hey, that's performance. Because promise rests in the the truth that he who began a good work in you and in others will complete it. Are you fearful of losing control of circumstances? That's performance. Promise rests knowing that he will never leave you or forsake you. In fact, as we confess this morning, he will work all things together for our good. Are you trying to create rules that help you feel better about yourself and help you feel more mature? Are you trying to artificially create experiences with God, trying to break out of the cycle of sin? That's performance. See, promise rests in the ordinary means of grace, because God has promised, hey, I will meet you in these things. You don't ever have to wonder. In my word, in worship, in confession, when you gather together, I'm going to meet you. I'm going to change you. Resting in promise. Are you full of pride and judgment and anger and impatience? Or maybe you're full of despair. Hey, that's where performance leads you. Promise leads to love and to joy and to peace, peace, and to patience and to kindness. Do you live by promise or do you live by performance? And look, for those of you who profess faith in, in Christ, but God really has no place in your heart. Like scripture comes at that very strongly. Look, you cannot fake it for long. You, you cannot fake it, God knows. And look, just because you may say with your mouth or you you sort of make an assent that you believe in Jesus, but if there's no actual change in your life, if there's no actual, like, God doesn't have a a place in your heart, then you're faking it. You're still performing. You see, what, what Scripture says is that when you have genuine faith, something supernatural has happened, that you have been transformed. You have new life in you. You've been born again. And that life leads... transformation yeah it's slow yeah it's messy yeah it's painful but it's there and it happens and god's children love him god's children know him god's children have his power at work in him so don't think that just because you make statements means you're good is the power of god at work in your life have you truly put your faith in christ does he have does christ have a place in your heart Are your affections growing for him? For those of you here this morning that you're you're consciously like, yeah, I don't profess faith in Christ. Look, the promise is held out for you too. No matter how sinful you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, the grace of God, the promise of God goes down into the deepest, darkest pit. There is no sin he cannot forgive, no sin he cannot cleanse you from. And so he holds out the promise for you as well, church, or you who do not know Christ. And church, let us be reminded day by day, we live by promise, not performance. We have promises that give us hope. Good has come and is coming our way. We have confidence, no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how dark it gets, God has promised good to us. He is for you. He fights for you. He is faithful. And you need not give in to despair. And here's the good news of the gospel His promise is unconditional. You don't have to perform, just believe and receive. Rest in that promise, trust in that promise, take hold of that promise. And so, church, as we're transformed by promise, let us encourage one another. Let us live out of that sense and let's call each other to live out of that promise. And then let us go into this world and celebrate that promise and proclaim the promise that is in Christ. Amen.